Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 70 for the week of January 4th, 2015. I almost said 14. On this week's show, good news, um, you don't need DNA to make proteins. What? What? Uh, We have a metabolism quiz. We're going to learn if arsenic and rice is something you need to worry about. And finally, smoke them if you got them. Because most cancers are due to random mutations, and we'll talk about that more. <laughs> so, wow. Who do we? That, that's my ringing endorsement. I'm a. Uh, oh my god. Good thing I'm not a physician. You know, like those like camel ads smoking back in the right. day. Um, so those wonderful voices you hear in the background, of course, is the regular crew, and I'm so glad it's been a few weeks and or a couple weeks, and and we're we're back on the saddle. We have with us Carolina Balkenbush. She's a registered dietitian out of Las Vegas, Nevada. Hi. Hi. And uh, you can find her blog at carolinaskitchen.com where she has wonderful, healthy, delicious foods and the like. (laughs) (laughs) We also have with us Christian Copley-Salem. He is a graduate student in cell molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada Reno School of Medicine. Hello, Christian. Yay. Yay. I'm here. I bear the same title. My name is Scott Barnett. And your name is Christian Copley? That is so weird. That's not a title, Christian. Oh, I thought it was. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) It's a title of some sort. I'm easily confused. So uh, (laughs) what's really cool is that, like, as much as I like Christmas and New Year's, it's actually, like, we've been off for two weeks. It's when, like, all the podcasts go off. You know, I just don't like to make podcasts. I love to listen to them. There's a whole bunch I listen to, and it's all been like best ofs and repeats and all this sort of stuff. And they're all starting to come back online again. So this is like my second Christmas, like uh, the Hobbits having Elevensies, second breakfast. This is my my second Christmas here. I get to listen to all my podcasts coming back here. And I get to talk to you fine folks. I really haven't talked to you guys in a couple weeks. I've been out and about. You've been doing your thing. So how would everyone do? How was your Christmas? Tell me about it. Go. Uh, oh, me first? Sure. Sure. Okay. Um, so so I did um, a traditional Polish Christmas again, but we did it on the 23rd, which involves um, like eating no meat. You just eat a whole bunch of fish. Uh, so we didn't do any of like the nasty fish. Uh, like some years we'll fish. do uh, pickled herring. Ooh. Oh, so, yeah, it's disgusting. It's just raw and pickled. And oh. It tastes awful. Oh. Another one of my least favorites is um, there's carp cooked in uh, gelatin. Ooh. Oh, served, it's served jellyfish. Also. It's like a yeah. jellied yes, fish. Yeah, it's, it's it's a fish broth gelatin. Um, yes. So what's the deal? Like, is there, <laughs> what, what's the background? Like, this is something I'm assume that's been done for hundreds of years in the old country, and you carry it on like a good person of Polish history. But do you know why it all started? Well, I know the the main reason is is Catholic tradition. Um, a lot of European Catholics will, will follow the tradition of not eating meat on Fridays, um, especially not meat not, not on Fridays during Lent and Advent. Right. Um, and so in, in Poland, they really emphasize that, especially on Christmas Eve. So you'll do like meatless dishes, and so fish is an easy option. And I guess um, tradition has it that you serve uh, twelve different dishes on uh, Christmas Eve, so you have to get kind of creative. And huh. so you get some weird get fish variations. Fish? That's the very. I would think you would come up with like a new dessert. Like <laughs> we're gonna have an extra sugary <laughs> cake of some kind, you know. But, 
Yeah, yeah. And we, we eat a lot of poppy seeds, too. We have um, um, a poppy seed cake for dessert. So if I were to have my opium levels tested. Did they prove – is that – I don't – I always wondered if that's a myth or not. And I actually think the Mythbusters covered it, and I don't remember what their response was, if you actually will pop on a piss test for eating poppy seeds. Well, Christian, tell me about your Christmas, and I'll check that. Okay. Christian, <laughs> Christmas times. Oh, ho. Um – well, I, I mean, okay, my Christmas wasn't really that exciting in terms of being different. It was pretty much the same thing. Um, relatives, you know, whatever, blah, blah. Um, the thing is, to me, holidays are not relaxing. They're stressful because you have to cook, you have to clean, you have to do this and that and the other. And, like, it's all done orchestrated around a single moment in time that's supposed to crescendo into this perfect moment of relaxation and joy. And <laughs> it, it just doesn't necessarily come together that way. But I imagine Brandon does most of the cooking for you guys, right? Or are you well, dragged into it as, like, a helper? But this is the He works on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day every year. Right. So I end up having to do all of the the stuff on Christmas Day to get ready to then drive an hour and a half to deliver it to where we're going to be. So, yeah, I'm I'm sort of part of that. <laughs> but, so, uh, it, was there anything enjoyable about it other than the stress of the perfect crescendo? Uh, no, I, well, yes. I mean, it, I I enjoyed being with family. The whole cliche, blah blah blah. It just it feels very contrived to me, and it always has. I feel like Christmas is for kids. Yeah, it, it, it's a matter of fact, like for us, Thanksgiving is the big holiday. Um, and Christmas is always a because we're all we have no we're all adults now. You know, our youngest person in our direct family is, you know, 25, you know, so it's a time right. to hang out. But it's not really that special. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm imagining that your Christmas was probably more fun than mine. <laughs> the uh, yes, I went to Kauai for a week with my entire family, and uh, I, much to the disbelief and and a lot of suspicion from from most people I speak to, our whole entire family enjoys each other. So like, it's totally cool for us to spend a week together. And, Having met them, I totally believe that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so we went out there. You know, it was exactly like to a T what you'd expect from like a Hawaii vacation. You know, there was scuba diving, there was hiking, there was jumping in the ocean. There was, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. And it was just jumping a in the like, ocean. That just is what one in the does water in Hawaii. And if you were, <laughs> so uh, I've never really been to Hawaii and I guess Kauai is like a very low key Island in which was perfect. Like it's just, it's very mellow, no big, skyscrapers or anything like that it's just a few resorts here and there and, and it's a uh, super super low-key and someone from our lab um who used to be in our lab uh he is from Kauai, so he gave me some cool places to go and his family left uh they, i guess most people don't know this and i didn't know this that that in hawaii they have these these what look like are are like comic sized avocados. They're we got one of the smaller ones from his house that was about five times the size of a Haas avocado. They're as big as your head when they're really big. It, it, it's comic. It looks like they got hit with a dose of radiation from a comic book, and they're yeah. just as tasty. It's not because you know a lot of fruit when it gets big or vegetables, it kind of gets bland or tough or whatever. Absolutely perfect. Mm. So uh, that was really cool. Awesome. But 
Yeah, it was fun. I, I really, I, I haven't scuba dived in about eight or nine years, and it was really cool to get back out there. They're, I guess Kauai is really famous for their sea turtles, so you, you can have these big loggerhead turtles that just hang out like under the water, and then like every 20 minutes they come up to take a breath and, or eat or do whatever, then they just kind of sink back down to the bottom and wedge themselves on a piece of coral, wait till they want to come up again, and that's, that's what they do. And uh, I saw awesome. a bunch of those. It was uh, very cool. So, go When I was so- there, I, I didn't see any turtles that was the only thing i didn't see while i was in hawaii i was like no turtles yeah if you you often have to dive because they're a bit deeper um except when they're feeding i guess they come up we have a little video clip of it there like when they came to the surface um and i guess they come right up to like the coral and the rocks and they eat the seaweed and stuff and you just have Hmm. to be there at the right time yeah okay i have our answer okay okay (laughs) you can (laughs) infect test positive for opiates um, in your urine um, even more than 48 hours after consuming as little poppy seed as would be on, like, a poppy seed bagel. Just that. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. It's very, very sensitive. Um, so, actually, inmates are not allowed to eat poppy seeds <laughs> for that reason. <laughs> or, yeah, and and many lawsuits have been settled over this issue. I bet. And, wow. I, and I did find that Mythbusters episode, and they did confirm that you can it pop. It's true. Oh, very cool. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It's funny. Like I used to love MythBusters before it got all not cool, and um, and the <laughs> so well, they're actually going back. I'm a huge <laughs> fan of Adam Savage, and he actually has a website called Tested, and he actually has a very cool podcast too. He's a super tinkerer creator. He used to work for Industrial Light and Magic, which does all the special effects, and he's a model builder. He's a really cool guy, and. The Mythbusters turned into the show like the last few seasons where it was like 80% like their underlings who are nice enough people, but it's not really like the show I grew to love. But they actually fired everyone except for Adam and Jamie. And their next season, I think in the next week or two, they're starting up again. It's just them again. So I have a little oh, cool. hope that it's going to be uh, cool. I'm going to enjoy Mythbusters again. So so let's cross our fingers. But um, awesome. also during my break, like I've been doing some like housekeeping on my computer and I was like transferring some blu-rays to my computer so I can have them on my little home server and uh, I was also listening to a book uh, The Hunt for Red October which is a very famous book and subsequently a movie with Sean Connery but the so I'm listening to the book and in the book this just is a weird little nerd fact here they're talking about how you know they were trying to figure out if like this this new Russian submarine could be ultra quiet and it couldn't blah 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 and you know it's all Cold War stuff this has happened in you know the late 80s and uh, that's when the book was written and they were using a Cray 2 supercomputer to crunch the data and they needed like to use it for like three days straight to figure out if this Russian submarine could in fact be quiet and so I Google it. I'm like, oh, Cray 2 supercomputer. Okay. And I look it up and I look up, you know, how powerful it was at the time. And this is like 1990. This isn't even that long ago. And it put out 1.9 gigaflops, which is, means it can do 2 billion operations per second. And then I compared it to the iPhone, the iPhone 5, not even the iPhone 6, to 75 gigaflops. So Jeez. the iPhone 5 is 35 times more powerful than a Cray supercomputer in, in 1990 that took up an entire room and probably used a small, you know, reactor to power the thing. <laughs> 35 times more powerful in, in, in your palm of your hand. That's, to me, is nuts how far we've come in that way. Cause, and it got me thinking of it because I'm taking these Blu-rays and I'm converting them to different formats and, and specializing. It takes a couple hours to convert it. And my computer is way more powerful than an iPhone. And I'm like, it takes this computer two hours to convert this movie. Like in the Cray 2 supercomputer from 90, this would be like a three-year project. You know what I mean? To convert this one movie. So go computers. 
That's awesome. I know. That's my little side story. So um, I also wanted to give a shout out to Mike Dubueno. He just happened to like the podcast yesterday on Facebook, uh-huh. like you all should. That's Very what you nice. do. You might get a random shout out. I'm sure we just made his day, possibly. You gonna send him some hash browns? Oh, some ha- good. good. Right. That was nice. I was we, waiting. Well, for we some. will get out of science here very quickly, but I would just no. I I came up with in my mind would might be my greatest invention ever, and in, that's probably been done a million times before involving hash browns. So we got just some of the raw potatoes, hash browns, you know, chopped up, and we, I made hash browns yesterday for breakfast, and then it hit me, which would be the greatest idea for the ultimate hash brown, which is. You basically do hash brown buns with mashed potatoes and cheese in the middle. Oh. And that's what, what we're making for breakfast today. So it's oh basically going to be mashed, er, hash brown bottom, cheesy mashed potato in the middle, hash brown top. That's going to be my morning. So before you go into a diabetic coma, I feel like you're going to take a picture of this. <laughs> I should take You know what? But you know what? It's gluten-free. It's, it's gluten-free. It's, it's, there you go. That's, that's a fact. So mm-hmm. not one bit of weed in there. All right. I'm sure people are just begging for us to move on and not talk about how the Ducks are going to the national championships in one week. What? Yay. Go Ducks. Very exciting. And Ohio State beat Alabama, who was a huge favorite to win their bracket. And so it's going to be a very, very interesting game. Although Ohio State has a unfortunate record of destroying us when we play them. So uh, let's hope that doesn't happen. So. Anyways, that's all. Sure, I'll get on that bandwagon. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, other than that, everyone's been good. Nothing else uh, to report. Any fun Christmas presents? Um, I got a coffee maker because you know the whole gout thing. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, you have gout? Here's a coffee maker." You need is, are, are these are these generally correlated? Forty uh, percent reduction. Two, to three, two to three cups of coffee a day has like a forty percent reduction in gout outbreak issues i wonder if it's an acid thing um i uh, i drink lots of coffee so i'm protected yeah it's it's pretty correlated um to helping make it better so i said what the heck yeah give it a go why not right yeah it's a keurig it's kind of awesome it's like a 2.0 it makes a carafe it's like this huge monstrous thing awesome there you go caroline you get anything fun (laughs) i got a a gift card to williams sonoma which was pretty funny because it was (laughs) Very shortly after I read um, my annual edition of the Deadspin.com um, blog post about the Hater's Guide to the Williams Sonoma Catalog, where points out all of the, <laughs> <laughs> the ridiculous, overpriced uh, white people goods. That's exactly that accurate. But anyone who's been in there, they are damn beautiful, overpriced, oh, rich white people goods. I know, and you, you can actually—I <laughs> learned from the Hater's Guide that you can buy. Uh, a fruit cake uh, crafted by uh, Trappist monks in the Ozarks for about forty dollars. <laughs> so please tell me. You it's got a, it. it's a good read. It's a it's a very good read. Um, oh my god! I'll leave some of it to mystery because we really do have to get to science. But um, Deadspin.com. Uh, you guys can just Google um, Hater's Guide to Williams Sonoma Catalog. Oh, I And they have it. like a 2012, 2013, and 2014 edition um, where they go through. <laughs> it's worth awesome. a read. It's very well, good. Dharma hates him, so this will be perfect. Be good Excellent. Just Enjoy. It. All right, go team. The only I, I had the uh, I know we'll move on here. I um, Hawaii was my Christmas present, but Dharma got me one of those one of those alarm clocks. That's a big giant dinner plate size sphere that turns bright to simulate the sunrise. You've seen these before? 
Yes. No? Yes. So, uh, yeah, it basically it starts out like a warm orange, like simulating the sunrise, and then it turns really white, and it's this big dinner plate-sized white light, and that's supposed to wake you up naturally at whatever time you determine rather than... Uh, uh, uh. So, I've been trying that bad boy out. Does it work? Yeah. I, I mean, yes, and I've... And no, I don't know. We'll figure out. <laughs> it's too early to tell. I, lo- I love the total contradiction of like vocal tones. Yes, and well, no. I, <laughs> I really enjoy it, but I don't know if it actually works yet. I like. The- okay, I really like right. the idea behind it. So, so excellent. All right, science blast. Science blast. Pew 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 pew. Seven thirty in the morning. That's what you get. <laughs> Carolina, give us some taki takis. Okay, me first. <laughs> That's awesome. Sorry. Oh, I need to collect myself. Okay, so so last time we recorded, um, Aaron Miller was on the show, and Aaron. he's so awesome. He's Aaron's so great he's guy. so great. Um, and he mentioned that he was interested in hearing about um, arsenic in rice and whether it's true that there's arsenic in rice and if we should be concerned. And I mentioned that, you know, Consumer Reports had put out um, their study back in 2012 about um, there being detectable levels of arsenic in rice. And he pointed out that Consumer Reports may not be the most reliable source for that kind of information. <laughs> so, <laughs> touche. Uh, so yeah. I dug a little deeper. <laughs> And I found that um, after this Consumer Reports article came out, um, the FDA delved a little deeper, and they were actually able to replicate all those results they found. Um, They basically tested uh, 1,300 different rice products uh, for arsenic content and did find that some of them had um, somewhat higher levels. So... So why why rice? Why why even be concerned about rice more than other foods? And how does arsenic even get into our food? So arsenic is found um, in in groundwater um, in higher concentrations in some parts of the world than others. Um, arsenic can also be used sometimes in pesticides. Uh, it's used in different types of industry um, and certain types of food processing. So rice is is um, of particular concern because of the way rice is grown. Rice grows in water, so it absorbs more of the arsenic from the water that it's grown in. Um, and so Consumer Reports did twist the information a little bit. They, they, they kind of um, raised concern more than they should have. They, they were saying that um, there were detectable amounts of arsenic in virtually all rice products that they tested, which is true, but Detectable doesn't necessarily mean dangerous levels. Um, the um, the EPA basically sets the the safe level of arsenic at 10 parts per billion in drinking water. So the FDA decided to set the same standard for rice products, and um, basically. And you would think it actually could be quite a bit higher in rice and be safe because you consume so much more water, water than right. rice. You know what I mean? But anyway, sorry. Yeah. Okay. So, so with that limit set of 10 parts per billion, um, that basically means that you won't have any like acute immediate effect from it. Um, arsenic poisoning is very, very dangerous. And, um, uh, and maybe, maybe Scott, I don't know if you want to, I didn't do this cause I'm not nearly as good at it as you are, but maybe you can go in depth on arsenic poisoning in one of these shows. I will. Um, that'd be awesome. Um, but basically, yes, it can kill you. It can kill you slowly or it can kill you quickly. Over the long term, um, arsenic exposure is linked to higher rates of um, 
lung cancer and heart disease um, and I, I believe kidney problems. I'm trying to find it right now. Um, but it's not really well understood how much, how the cumulative effect of arsenic over the long term will impact you. Um, and it's kind of difficult to study because you have to look at um, populations and their dietary patterns and epidemiological data seeing disease rates in different parts of the world. So that's that's sort of what FDA is looking at right now. But they did find that, that in all of the rice products they tested, um, basically the arsenic levels are below the 10 parts per billion limit set. Um, some types of rice products contain slightly higher amounts, and this can be of concern f- you know, if you're consuming a lot of these types of products or if you're feeding these things to, to kids or infants because they have you know, smaller body sizes. So the arsenic could accumulate more and their small body size potentially. Um, so rice cereals, baby rice cereals, do contain um, higher levels. Um, so the recommendation the FDA has is uh, basically to serve babies um, a variety of grain cereals, maybe limit um, rice cereal to only one serving per day. Um, rice milk um, also has higher levels of arsenic. Um, brown rice, as compared to white rice, has higher levels, and that's because the arsenic primarily accumulates in the outer portion that gets removed in the processing that gets it turned into white rice. So what I'm hearing um, is don't eat healthy. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, just don't don't make your diet primarily rice. <laughs> you know, it's like you said, it's it's most people don't eat a ton a ton of it. So as long as you're probably maybe like eating one serving of rice a day. That, um, that well, could be problematic for some cultures. Yes, like, for, for sure. But <laughs> for I think me, that's kind of the proof's in the pudding, right? Rice pudding? You see it? <laughs> yeah. I just had rice pudding like for the, like, the first time in years, like a week ago, and it was freaking oh delicious. Are you, feel, are you feeling nauseous or dizzy oh, or be hilarious discoloration you. in your nail beds? It was wonderful. <laughs> and uh, But if you're in most Asian countries, you're eating rice really at every meal. And uh, my, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's possible, but you'd think you would hear about it more commonly that arsenic poisoning is not yeah. a problem with, with those cultures. So doesn't that kind of tell you everything you need to know? So, yes and no. I mean, um, you would certainly hear about acute cases of arsenic poisoning because you'd be able to detect it in, in the body pretty quickly, um, like in fingernails and hair. But if maybe it, if it has a long-term effect and you have people dying of pretty uh, common causes, you know, like heart disease and cancer. Right. It's sort of difficult to tell whether that's because of arsenic or maybe uh, random risk for cancer, perhaps. Foreshadowing. So, so kind of hard to tell. But basically, a- another recommendation they have is if you are going to eat rice, um, they recommend rinsing it. Um, FDA says that rinsing your rice before you cook it um, can remove uh, about thirty percent of the arsenic in it. Huh, okay. Um, but not something that people need to be super concerned about. The the levels are sufficiently low to where it's not a risk. Um, biggest recommendation would probably be just, you know, eat a varied diet. And uh, as always, <laughs> isn't that always the recommendation? <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, I think probably rightfully so, too. And you bring mm-hmm. up a good point, which is these the symptoms are kind of diffuse and easily masked by other, you know, diseases. So it's uh, it could have a low accumulative effect and you really wouldn't know it was because of the arsenic. Yeah, unfortunately, that's very difficult to study. And, and FDA did promise that they're going to try to assess that long-term risk and see what recommendations should be made based on that. But 
they promised to have something on that out by the end of 2013 and you know we're in 2015 now and they still haven't been able to come up with anything <laughs> now christian i always forget um, oh no please continue um oh so what i was going to say too is is if this is you know of particular concern um especially if you have if you have children um or, or infants and you don't want to feed them rice because of the arsenic in it there are plenty of other grain options like honey um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, don't give honey to your infants. Oh. Um, on a side note, uh, <laughs> not Sorry. recommended for children under a year old. Um, but Is it a choking hazard or no? Botulism? No, no. Yeah, oh, yeah, they, yeah. They can't really deal with that. Um, but you can do other grains. You can do amaranth, quinoa, barley, uh, wheat, plenty of other other things instead of rice. There you go. And I like yeah. quinoa. It's sound. It's mm-hmm. fun to say, and it tastes all right. Couscous. Uh, ooh, that's a good one too. Um, so, Christian, um, you, how, what's the name of the competition you did your senior year with the synthetic biology? IGEM. IGEM. Aren't they working on? And isn't this part of the, the the supposed wonder that that of synthetic biology about using kind of these inherent capabilities of some of these plants to absorb certain heavy metals and stuff, and then engineer those into like marsh bed plants and stuff, so that like they kind of act as like filters for things that don't typically get worked out of the system yes have, you know have, have you heard of anything actually like coming out of that yet no and the, i mean i shouldn't necessarily talk negative about the iGEM stuff but it's kind of a lot of hypey type thing um, is it because it's in its infancy or part of it is that and because i mean i love molecular biology to death but let's be honest it it way put the the cart before the horse in terms of this is what we can do blah 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 like there's a whole lot of applications that are you know a ways away that are going to be hard to actually implement and igem doesn't have any follow-through so you get a bunch of students together and they do a bunch of projects with an idea in their head and they accumulate sequences of dna or whatever, in their little library. But then there's no sort of forward push incentive to use that library information to do something. So for people who don't know about iGEM, like in a couple sentences, what, what's the goal of it? Um, what you're doing is you're creating inter, um, interlocking DNA segments that can be mixed and matched to produce some sort of effect in some sort of organism. Um, for example, ours, which was kind of closely related to that Scott's, what Scott's asking about, was um, to make plants sensitive that are sensitive to temperature and stress conditions change color, like literally glow, in the presence of those stressors. So, um, Like a canary a in the coal mine or something for a plant. Yeah. And the way, like, the more technical part of it is the, like the plant would feel stressed from the cold, that cold activates promoters in specific regions that express genes that protect it from the cold and from freezing. So you just insert a green fluorescent protein in front or behind a promoter that's activated by cold, and you get an organic thermometer, really. Pretty much. You get a green glow whenever your plant is experiencing cold stress. Huh. Um, 
and that was really kind of what we did. But so we did that. We created a whole bunch of gene constructs, like um, the DREB proteins in plants are really are based around cold and um, heavy metal toxicity. And we put them together so that we had this nice little, you know, DREB promoter region fluorescent protein construct. And then we hand that over to them and they throw that into the database and then we go on and graduate and never think about it again. Right. Um, so in terms of your question, there is no incentive follow through for someone else to pick that project up because you're not going to win first place stealing someone else's project idea. Right. You're going to win by having your the most original idea of your own. So that's why you're a little sour on it. I'm not sour per se. I just don't have any expectation that they're going to have this breakthrough moment based on that database without creating an incentive for people to use it. Um, there's this tiny little writer in the very bottom of the of the competition that says if you incorporate someone else's construct as part of your unique idea, you get extra points for it. But that turns out to that. be so difficult that it's not worth it because you have five or six months to get this thing done and you're an undergrad and, you know, you have absolutely no idea what a transposon is and you're freaking out. Um, right. So it, <laughs> it, it's, it's not really arranged for that to be part of the, the competition. Fair enough. But rather than talk about depressing things like <laughs> unfinished projects, why don't we – why don't you – why don't you test us? Why don't you see what we're made out of? All right. Let's see what you're made out of. So what, um, what's your segment? I, I found this article um, on CNN, and I am not an expert by any stretch of the, the um, imagination on metabolism, but I know that Carolina is probably closer to being an expert on this than I am based on her background. And so what I thought I would do is I would take these specifically these five things, and um, I would test the studio audience to see if how much of this they know and how much of this they've absorbed. Some of these things are pretty, pretty typical um, beliefs that people have about the way the body works, especially in, you know, athletic training, personal trainer type um, circles, and... So I thought that we would go through them and see how maybe Scott did on these things. And I'm pretty this sure Caroline has probably well encountered them. Yeah. <laughs> you have so much confidence not. in me, I'm flattered. Well, <laughs> you're, you're definitely in a position to have come across some of these things more than, than, say, Scott. Although Scott did some working out, so that may or may not help. Like, that could actually interfere, but we don't know. <laughs> All right, so so let's hear your special quiz. You said it's five questions. There, well, there's five points, so five. I'm going to sort of make questions out of those. Um, oh. It may be five, it may be six. I'm oh. not going to make any promises here. Let's play it. it could home. be three if if it sounds terrible and we just give up on it and go home. <laughs> um, <laughs> if Scott gets the first three right, we're out. <laughs> <laughs> then it, it, may, it must be el so elementary if I can get the first three. Okay. All right. So as an introduction. Um, a lot of people are concerned about weight loss, especially in America. It seems to be every five minutes we have a new weight loss fad and a new weight loss diet and a new weight loss pill and a new weight loss, you know, secret scientific breakthrough. Um, and most of that 
I think Carolina will back me up on this. Most of that is BS. Like a lot of it is, you know, made up hype stories to get people to buy a product um, because people want a quick fix. People want someone to say, here's a pill, you lose weight, eat whatever you want. And 99.9999 to infinity percent of the time, that doesn't really work that way. Um, there's, uh, you know, even if it does work, there's alternate health risks that are terrible. You know, you're killing your liver or whatever. So one of the things that people look at is this magical word metabolism. And people get these ideas um, about how metabolism works and about how we should be doing this or that to lose more weight to, you know, you've seen products that boost your metabolism and all that kind of thing. Um, so I thought that we'd just go through some of these questions about metabolism and see um, what we get. And we'll talk about some of them because there's more detailed information about metabolism in the quiz. But so I don't want to give it all away ahead of time. Um, so question number one, um, do skinnier people in general have a higher metabolism? I'm going to say yes. And I'm going to say no. Yay! It's so exciting that Scott got the first one wrong. <laughs> but how do they say so skinny? Well, haven't you ever played like Dance Dance Revolution and like put in your weight as a 999 pound person and you can see like you burn 36 calories with basically every dance step? <laughs> because it just, it just takes true. so much energy to move. <laughs> <laughs> it's like living on Jupiter. If you think about the fact that sitting on the couch, and people don't necessarily know this, but it's true, sitting on the couch, just standing still, you're burning calories. You're always burning calories, no matter what you're doing. Right, and they I kind of assumed you meant level. a resting metabolism. Right. Well, if skinny people had such a high metabolism, they would eat themselves to death sitting on the couch watching Lord of the Rings. I mean, come on, it's a long movie. But... Um, <laughs> The, the Carolina's right. Actually, overweight people tend to have a higher metab resting metabolism than skinny people do. So they um, have to eat. Because there's more of them. Yeah, yeah they, ha they have to eat more to maintain their weight than skinny people do in general. Yeah. So then what, I don't know if this is implied in the question or if it's a further question or if it even has a good answer, but why <laughs> is it that some people can eat a lot in main skinny while some people can eat very little and be fat a whole infinity of genetic and lifestyle factors that would be hard to boil down into a but it single would come down to metabolism ultimately no it no. would it, it, it sort of does well and it's sort of unfortunate because um like a, a good example of this would be if you look at two, two people one person who naturally weighs you know 120 pounds and is you know five three and they can consume 1,800 calories a day on average, and they're maintaining their weight at 120 pounds. And you have another person who's the same height, 5'3", weighs 150 pounds, and they lose weight by consuming only 1,200 calories a day. And they get down to 120 pounds. To stay at 120 pounds like that other person at the same height, they're going to have to continue to eat that low calorie number. Because if they go back to eating you know, 1,800 calories like they were before, let's say, they're just going to gain the weight back. Right. So it's, you know, it, it's not a quite as simple as this is your weight and this is your height and this is how many calories you're going to have to consume. It really, there's, there's a lot more. Um, they, they kind of call it set point, but I don't, the science behind the whole set point idea is a little bit um, 
I guess, sketchy. Is that the idea if you gave this people the same height, all the same amount of calories, they would all weigh a different amount with similar activity? And that's supposedly the set point, I'm guessing? Yeah, well, the set point basically is is considered the weight that your body naturally wants to be at. Right. Which, which... it, it makes sense, you know, because there are genetic factors and there are lifestyle factors. But then there's this idea that you can change your set point over time. And I, I mean, I guess potentially that's true if there are people who are able to lose weight and keep it off and like still be able to eat a reasonable amount. And this is where like a lot of bodybuilders and um, personal trainers talk about um, re- the idea of reverse dieting. Where, you know, like let's say that person who lost their 30 pounds, they're now 120 pounds and they're consuming 1,200 calories. Um, the idea is that you would gradually increase your caloric intake while still maintaining your weight. Right, right, right. To like, basically speed up your metabolism. I don't know. I haven't been able to find any like peer-reviewed research on that actually working long-term. I'm fine with the idea of a set point, and I don't even think it's – unless you're super morbidly obese, if you're uh-huh. active you have a reasonable diet, I feel that whatever that set point is is – from what I can tell from the science, that you'll be fine. Uh, you uh-huh. won't be. You know what I mean. So, right for sure. No, no. I I guess what I should say is I I do believe that there's a set point. I just I'm not sure that you can change it that right, easily. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And and let's be. I think it's important to mention too that your set point is not going to be morbid obesity, most likely. Most likely. Like I think that's what Scott was saying is that you know if you if you're at your set point and you're eating a reasonable amount of calories and you're exercising a reasonable amount, if your set point is a few is 10 pounds over what you think you should be because that's what Angelina Jolie weighs, um, I think that's where it becomes problematic for people because they have mm-hmm. this unrealistic expectation that if they, like Carolina said, if they eat 1,800 calories and you know do this much, then they're going to weigh this amount. and that's, right. Or more importantly, that, that their optimal weight is... Is Something that well someone below else whatever has. they're comfortable with. I, there might even be right. adverse effects from from starving yourself all the time. Although there are, I know the longevity studies show otherwise. But I just mean in general with your stress <laughs> and all this sort of stuff. So other anyway, than the science, you're right. Yeah, this will true. be a three-hour show if we move through at this point. So <laughs> what's your? Well, I think one? we're going to skip question four anyway because it's dumb. So okay. Um, <laughs> so question number two: skipping meals slows down your metabolism. I'm going Scott, to you say, have to answer first. I'm going to I'm going to say no. <sighs> okay, I'll say yes. Okay. <laughs> Carolina's right. Oh, um, <laughs> negative ghostwriter. <laughs> actually, I'm lying. She's not. <laughs> Wait, which is it? It's no, Scott's actually right. Oh, um, yeah, that's right. I know. I just wanted to, just wanted to bust Scott. Um, <laughs> well, you don't have to go against me. Like, yes, I do. I, <laughs> I mean, how fun is it if we both answer the same? Uh, no, it, so actually Scott got this one right, and I think Carolina knew it because she was like, mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically, it be good this for is you, sort can of it? I, I, was, huh? I always thought I heard that not long-term fasting, but skipping an individual meal, not – not only is not bad for you, but in some ways is good. And I don't know if that's accurate at all, but that's what I remember hearing. There is a, there is a popular idea, and this, where this comes from is there is a popular idea that if you eat every couple of hours, that you're going to change your metabolism to a, um, 
a better, more like efficient thing because you're feeding it just the right amount of fuel. It has a sort of you're going to run out of gas if you don't put this much fuel in it every so often well, kind sure. of mentality. If someone who's dieted, they always say like, you know, you, you need it like every two hours you need a banana or a little 100-calorie snack. Like they always yeah. want which you is, to Which eat. is just straight up foolish because you're releasing <laughs> insulin every time you have that snack. Right, right. Yeah. So if you're constantly keeping your insulin level high, then now you're constantly storing um, all those calories. Right. Yeah. Probably as fat once your glycogen stores are full. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it... And a lot of it, too, is sort of a calories in, calories out thing. If you eat 2,000 calories a day and you exercise, you know, a certain amount, like we said before, you're going to weigh a certain set point probably around some point weight that um, it doesn't matter if you eat those 2,000 calories in three meals or four meals or two meals. Um, it, you're still going to have relatively the same effect. This is, of course, dependent on what you're eating in those meals, which always is important. Don't eat does three that, meals of Twinkies. Does that jive with what you you think the modern version of nutrition is, Carolina, or are there variations on that? Well, it's not super cut and dry because it it doesn't. It's not that it slows down your metabolism um, to skip meals, but if you skip meals and you have a tendency to overeat later. Right, and yeah. you just, it just kind of depends on your personality. And for some people, you you will gain weight if you skip a meal because then you'll overeat later. For other people, they might actually lose weight by skipping meals because they won't be able to make up that calorie deficit. Right, I fall I'm, into the former group because if I like skip lunch or have a really light lunch and then don't have like a mid afternoon snack, I'm more likely not necessarily to overeat at dinner, but to make a bad dinner choice because I'm really hungry. And my, mm-hmm. the brain doesn't yeah. quite work as as well. And I'll be like, oh, I'll have the a frozen pizza instead of a piece of salmon because I'm really hungry. You know what I mean? So Yeah, I'm yeah. the same way. Okay. The I, I'm I am too. The the best I've ever felt like the and the lowest I've ever weighed on a scale was because I ate um regularly. Right. If if mm-hmm. I skip if I tried to like have a huge breakfast and then skip lunch and then eat dinner, dinner was a disaster. Right. Like a, a complete, basically a complete orgy of overeating and complete disregard for anything in the universe. I just wanted to eat. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's better for me to have a more regular, consistent eating pattern than right. than not. So but that's your next not question? necessarily for everybody. Yeah. Um, do we have a tiebreaker here? We do. We do. Um, I'm going to skip number four. Okay. Because it's really a, it's it's not a super interesting question. Um, the question the the myth is that metabolism is all about burning calories and breaking things down, which we all know that metabolism is both breaking things down and building things up. There's actually two different words, um, catabolism and I guess it's pronounced anabolism. I've never heard anyone pronounce it the same. <laughs> <laughs> but so basically. Um, Catabolism is when you're breaking things down that you eat, and anabolism is when you're putting things together from those breakdown products. So um, the, the answer is that metabolism is both breaking things down and um, generating new body parts and things out of it. Um, so that wasn't a really interesting question. So number, number five-ish, um, true or false, you have no control over your metabolism. Well, I think we've already answered this one. Yeah, right. And the, so the answer is 
False. I'm False, gonna call yeah. it uh, trolls. Um, you do have effect you you can have an effect on your metabolism to a certain degree obviously one of the big things is your weight affects your metabolism right off the bat is Um, it a myth about exercising increasing your metabolism or is that true no that's true because i mean if you're exercising especially if you're doing strength training and you're you're building up um you're creating you're creating more muscle fibers or creating larger muscle fibers with more mitochondria, you're going to have right. more metabolic potential in your body. Now, do you, is that carry over with something like endurance training, um, or is that strictly based on the fact that you're just burning calories during the workout, so you need more calories? Endurance training works for creating more mitochondria within your muscle fibers. So you need more energy, essentially. Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. So they, yeah. Both, yeah. And so, it increases, so they both work. It increases your resting the amount of stuff you burn while you're resting. Uh-huh. Um, earlier when we said that skinny people have, you know, burn less resting calories, that's true, but it's really more about Carolina, what Carolina said, your muscle mass and um, your lean muscle. Basically, lean muscle eats fat for lunch while you're just sitting around. Um, so, because my, she said that mitochondria affect it, and that's because mitochondria use beta-oxidation, um, for resting muscle, so it's literally just directly metabolizing fat while you're sitting to have a higher lean muscle mass. Right. So um, that that's probably the the biggest um, most direct effect you can have on your metabolism is to have a little more lean muscle and a little less um, gut fat. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I won. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got the big the big punch question at the end. Um, I and. This was a question I had for Carolina. One of the things that they they mentioned is that caffeine is beneficial um, to calorie burning. Is that necessarily true? Do you recommend that? I've heard that too. Yeah, um, I do, I, it doesn't like directly impact your metabolism, but it's it's beneficial because it does um, it does increase like the speed with which you can run, and it does improve the amount of time that you can basically go exercising before you get tired. Hmm. Um, I, like the thermic effect of food that you have from, from drinking a caffeinated beverage is pretty minimal. Like, so if you just drink a cup of coffee and then are sed- sedentary during the day, it's not going to have much of an impact on your calorie burn. Hmm. That's my okay. preferred choice. It's, yes. <laughs> so it's an enhancement for, for activity. Is what you're yeah, saying. I mean, it will. You will burn slightly more calories if you just drink a cup of coffee and do no exercise because it will speed up your heart rate. Mm-hmm. So I guess you know, in some small way, you are. Right. But that's that's pretty. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine because you're yeah. probably chips while you're sitting on the couch, and that just killed the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing too is it says get enough protein, and I I used to give one of the guys at work when I worked at. Larry's a whole lot of crap about eating like 400 milligrams of protein a day and he's like I need to do it to bulk up and can I was just like poop it out how much can yeah, you I'm absorb like, in an hour I'm like you're dumb oh, that's <laughs> a very good question <laughs> it, it varies somewhat but but most people can absorb between like 30 and 40 grams yeah like so there's bars that have like 60 grams if you just eat it you're just gonna poo or peep it out right Peep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, peep, peep it out. <laughs> I'm already thinking of Easter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Speaking so, of yeah, sugar spikes. Okay, yeah. You should eat but, a decent amount of protein, but 
400 milligrams or whatever they give you in those giant protein shakes is probably excessive. Right. Yeah. Well, awesome. So. Thank you, Christian. Sweet. Go team. Uh-huh. Um, we are running long, so I will just do one story and I will keep it short here. But it's one that I think is really cool and has some uh, some pretty exciting potential. It actually comes from uh, – I read it on Science Direct and it came via the University of Utah. Um so, Christian, I'll ask you this question here. Uh, oh, God. It, it's a softball. It's a test. It's a I'm softball. nervous. What is the central dogma of biology? Um, um, that lemons have a yellow color, but only in the spring. That's wildly inaccurate. Oh, um, actually, <laughs> I think it's DNA makes RNA makes protein. In that, that is order. correct, sir. As a matter of fact, it, they use the word dogma. As in a religious just, sense, because it is so, it's a horrible word, and, and they probably should have never have done it, uh, but it is so accepted that that is the way the body works. DNA goes to RNA, goes to proteins, that, uh, that it's, it's been called a dogma. And uh, so a little read into the story here. So like uh, the ribosome, so once you make your RNA and it becomes messenger RNA that goes into the cytosol, the center of the cell there. And the ribosome, which, which takes that mRNA, it recruits over a little piece called the tRNA that has a little amino acid onto it. And then it is incorporated based on the instructions from the mRNA, and it's strung into a big, long strand of protein. Um, it's just essentially a machine. You know, if we were to think of DNA as like built, if we were to think of like this is all building a house, the DNA is like a master set of plans for the house. The messenger RNA is like an edited plan from the architect after the engineers get a chance to look at it. And then the ribosome is like the construction worker that reads the plans and starts putting the house together. So in the cell, rather than having like kitchen sinks and bedrooms and all that stuff we need to assemble, we just have a pallet of 20 amino acids and they can be strung together in any order that the mRNA dictates it to and when you're done you get a protein so it's, it's it's a pretty basic process here most people listening to the show are aware of all that so um the construction worker or i should say ribosome in this case it consists of two different pieces it has a 40s segment and a 60s segment which is just a, a part a and a part b they come together along with the mrna at least in eukaryotes this is how it works um and then the code is read and the protein is made the, this DNA to mRNA to protein sequence is referred to as the central dogma biology as we we're talking about. That is until now. So uh, sort of. It comes with, with, with little consequences here. So Peter Shen, he's a PhD and a postdoctoral fellow of biochemistry at the University of Utah. He just released a paper uh, in science, hot off the presses, from uh, January 2nd of this year. And um, what they discussed was that, you know, they knew going into it that the that um, if mRNA is bad, if, if there's something wrong with the sequence of how it was made, if something has gone awry with the mRNA and it was not made properly, when it binds to the ribosome, uh, the ribosome can detect this error. And it's not like a sequence error. It's an error in like, like something that it, it, can't, it can't use that mRNA properly based on how it was made. And, you know... Um, it will read it and it kind of says, well, I can't make sense of this. Screw it. And I'm out of here. And, and so what happens is, is that the 40S and the 60X segment of the ribosome, they dissociate. And this translation of the mRNA to a protein is stopped. 
Now, more specifically, the stalled translation, it induces the 40S dissociation. And what happens is, is something is recruited in called a quality control complex, a ribosome quality control complex, the RQC. And that will bind to the 60S subunit along with the mRNA that's still there. And it will actually mediate the the uh, degradation of that nascent chain of, of, of uh, protein. So it will say, whoa, something's wrong here. The quality control complex comes in, it binds it, and it says we need to degrade this, uh, this, uh, this protein. Something's up, and we'll move on here. So um, up until now, that this has all been well-known and studied. And what Dr. Shannon had discovered, though, that after the 40S dissociates, something called this uh, LTN1P ring, and I love it, ring is all caps. It's an acronym for really interesting new gene, which I wish they would keep because that's a cool name, but I'm sure <laughs> some boring person's going to say that doesn't count, and it's just going to be a really boring name again. But for now, this really interesting new gene is placed uh, in the domain right next to the exit channel where the protein comes out. And... This is what's really weird, and this is never known before. So this protein, now keep in mind, this is an already made protein without the aid of DNA, template, RNA, uh, mRNA, microRNA, no, no DNA-based work here. It rapidly recruits a bunch of alanines and threonines, which are just two different amino acids, and it keeps tacking those on to the end of the protein and adds a whole bunch to the end of that partially corrected or uh, partially created defective protein. Now keep in mind that these amino acids, you know, uh, that are added to the end of the protein. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, they're added in the absence of this mRNA tablet, and it's never been seen before. The additions of amino acids based on a protein binding rather than uh, than the DNA template, and this is kind of it, it, the whole central dogma is still true. But this is a very nice little supplementary information saying that that is not the only way we can add amino acids and i'm not talking about like a post-translational modification where you might have like a specific amino acid added on this is a whole bunch added on to the end of the uh, uh to the to the protein sequence and um it while it may not be like a, a like an interesting you know functional protein addition you know based on the like an, uh, a dna template it is in fact growing the protein chain without DNA. And that's uh, surprisingly, even though it sounds kind of boring, it's a pretty big deal within science because nobody's seen this before here. And, you know, you may be wondering, well, what's the point of adding all these amino acids to the end? You already have, uh, you know, a, a method to destroy that that bad piece of protein. And they, what they said was that the signal could be um, uh, that it's another mechanism to make sure the protein is destroyed. It's sending a, this this weird signal, and and the, the part of your uh, the proteins in your cell that destroy it will, will more likely to to see it in this case. And they also think that uh, these are fun buzzwords that everyone likes to put in their their research. They think think it could be the related to faulty neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, ALS, and Huntington's, um, but they didn't really specify how. So that's that's it, you know, and it, it made me think of like, uh, I'm sure Christian is, Carolina, are you familiar with Ubiquita Nation? Um, no. No, so... That's what I was thinking this whole time. Right, and that's, <laughs> that's my first thing my brain went to, too, and it's a similar idea in that, so when post-translational modification is when you have a protein made and something um, 
it is very, very, very common to have little additions made after the protein is completely made and functional that will change the function of the protein. So you can add like a like a like a, a phosphorus group, and that will turn the protein on, make it work, and you can remove it. And there are a couple dozen post-translational modifications. When it's time to destroy a protein, when it's done its bidding, and even though it's still fine, the cell says we need to get rid of it. We don't need you now. A little ubiquitination post-translational modification is added to it and that says to the cell let's kill this thing it's time to be done and that's kind of feels like what it's doing to this protein here it's uh rather than having this 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 ubiquitination it's having a bunch of alanines and threonines added you know to, to the end of it and that's you know they're not calling it a post-translational modification what is going on here because it's all taking place in the ribosome i think so they're treating this as the addition the lengthening of a protein and not a post-translational modification, but it's still interesting. Yeah, hmm. They also had a really cool technique. Uh, it's called uh, uh, cryo-electron microscopy. You know, Christian and I have been doing this for years and years, and we're not PhDs yet, but, man, we've been doing this for a while. I've never heard of this before. Have you heard of cryo-electron microscopy? No. Yeah, they. Uh-uh. Uh, it, it's, it's similar. I mean, it, it's kind of what you'd expect. You basically take the innards of a cell while everything's working, you flash freeze it in liquid nitrogen, and they were able to determine this because they were the ribosome. You know, they they was in action, and they snap froze this entire um, cytosol, and then they looked at it under the electron microscope, and they were able to see this this new ring, you know, protein bound on, and they're like, "What the heck is this?" And they were able to work backwards and confirm everything. So, so hmm. uh, a new a new technique, but. That's kind of awesome. Very cool. It's my story. We'll talk about cancer next week. Yeah, Yay. you know, Scott, you need to start going first because you're so polite and you let us always talk first and there's not <laughs> enough time for you. The main reason is that I normally ramble on so much in the intro that I feel like we need other voices. Uh, so maybe if I just shut up in the intro, I, uh, I I can go first next time. I'm sure I'm sure nobody minds hearing your voice. Aww. Um, I just have a quick update, though. Um, so I, I said that um, arsenic can lead to uh, kidney cancer. Um, I was very close. It's actually it's bladder cancer, bladder, mm. lung, and skin cancers in the long term. There yeah, you go. That sounds awful. Yep. Yeah. So Want to make sure that was accurate. None of those sound fun. Yeah, but also you know very difficult to pinpoint the cause. The bladder is a vestigial <sighs> organ, so that's not that big of a deal. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> uses that thing. What yeah. are you talking about? It's just like a tail. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, um, shoot, be like Mike DeBueno, who did not ask to be shouted out, but we have, and go to our Facebook page, and uh, go ahead and like us on Facebook, maybe go to Twitter, follow us there, do as you please, Um, that's that, and I have an exciting announcement next week, so make sure you tune in then. Ooh. We don't know what that is either. (laughs) (laughs) We're like, we're stunned silent. Yeah, we're we're not not faking I can tell you about it after. (laughs) But okay. We, we we need to tease it for the for our listening audience. I so, gotcha. All right. Awesome. Um, goodbye. All right. Bye, everyone. Cool. We're gonna go Peace. hear the Have secret. Have a good week. Without Dell, our our exits are just so like blasé now. <laughs> yeah. I miss Dell. You need, you need to come. All right. Goodbye. And Bye. Scene. <laughs>